Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. At some point, I might just need to make this entire podcast uh, just about intermediary liability issues, or maybe even just about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, especially since Section 230 is under such constant attack these days. Uh, A few weeks back, we posted the interview that I did on the A16Z podcast, Uh, talking about the president's executive order. Uh, But last week we saw some level of, I guess you could call it, movement on two parts of the plans to dismantle Section 230. Uh, First up, we had Senator Josh Hawley introduce uh, his bill to somewhat limit Section 230. I guess you could call it limit Section 230, entitled the Uh, limiting Section 230 to Good Samaritans Act, which does a bunch of very odd things, in my opinion, uh, and most particularly would turn the immunity from liability into something more like a cause of action for tons of nuisance lawsuits by letting people sue platforms for up to $5,000 plus attorney's fees for moderation decisions that they deem to be not in good faith. Uh, And yes, this is the same Josh Hawley who has already released other bills that would also rewrite Section 230. He really seems to have a thing for disliking and dismantling (laughs) Section 230. Uh, Later the same day that the Hawley bill was introduced, the Justice Department released its first draft of a plan to reform Section 230. And I... it sort of tried to balance the two conflicting complaints about Section 230, which is that one group feels that it doesn't give enough incentives to take down bad stuff, and another group feels that it gives too much freedom to take down stuff they like. Uh, And the DOJ's plan says that the law should be revised to force companies to take down more bad stuff, but leave up more good stuff. Uh, It's just a general description of a plan rather than anything like a reference law, but it's still worth discussing. So today on the podcast to talk about both of these proposals, we have two Section 230 experts, both of whom have been on the podcast before. We have Emma Alonso from the Center for Democracy and Technology and Kathy Gellis, who is an independent internet lawyer and a frequent contributor to TechDirt. So Emma, we'll start with you and we'll start with the Hawley bill. Uh, what's your take on the bill? What does it do and what does it mean? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um, this is a <laughs> this is a a proposal that combines a couple of ideas that are really floating around about um, you know the uh, purported problems with Section two hundred and thirty or uh, the big concerns that people have with um, the scope of liability that um, two hundred and thirty shields intermediaries from. Um, but in general, what the Holly Bill does is it would condition the kind of the key protection in Section 230, 230 C1, which says these are the 26 words that created the Internet after uh, Jeff Kossoff's book title um, that broadly shields uh, intermediaries of all sorts from liability for user generated content, um, you know, if 
if that liability would treat the intermediary as a speaker or a publisher of that content. Um, so it's a very broad liability. And as uh, other folks, including Eric Goldman, have pointed out, most Section 230 cases end up hinging on this particular liability shield. Um, so right. it's, it's really kind of the heart and soul of how Section 230 protects free speech online. Um, the Hawley Bill would make that protection contingent on uh, intermediaries, or it introduces now the concept of edge providers, um, doing a, a couple of things. One, companies would have to have uh, terms of service or content policy that articulates what their content policy is. Um, it would have to, they would have to then promise to design and operate their systems, quote unquote, in good faith. And then the bill introduces this definition of good faith that says it does not include activity that would be intentionally, selectively enforcing those terms of service. Um, and this appears to mean in the, uh, in the proposal from Holly that either your kind of human moderation, you know, your, your human review of content cannot be intentional selective enforcement, but also any automated systems that you have, any algorithms that you use um, in a content filtering system can also not be intentional selective enforcement. Um, so this would really significantly change what it meant for a service to craft a content policy and enforce it because one of the kind of key things to understand about content moderation at scale online is it is kind of in, inherently going to be prone to error. It is going to be prone to what might appear to the outside to be selective enforcement, but instead really reflects the fact that companies cannot comprehensively evaluate all of the material on their services. You know, website operators cannot review the enormous amount of material that they see and carefully apply one set of rules similarly to every single post. That's just not how it can work when you are hosting material at that scale. Um, so the idea that any kind of perceived inconsistency about how a particular service was enforcing its own terms, terms would get turned into the grounds for a lawsuit would really radically change what it meant to host content at all. Um, I, I'll stop there as kind of the, the intro or overview, but I think this bill could actually have a lot of um, unintended consequences, uh, which is sort <laughs> of the watchword for, for most proposals that we're seeing around Section 2 yeah. these days. Um, but, you know, after thinking about kind of how all the pieces of this bill might work together, it really struck me that this might instead be the sort of return to the Wild West bill. Um, mm. Every incentive that I see in this proposal would actually be towards companies making few, if any, promises about what kind of content moderation they might do. Um, I think most of the incentives in this bill stack towards online services saying, you know, we're not going to promise much of anything in our content policies. We are going to take a, you know, buyer beware sort of stance with uploading and interacting with third party content on our service because you just can't take on the liability of having a kind of granular and finely articulated set of policies if every single word in those policies potentially opens you to many different lawsuits. Right. So the, the, the fear there is that in some sense, it also decreases the transparency of how all of these things operate because any transparency is now, now opening you up to liability. Um, Kathy, uh, do you want to, what's you, so you is... you're very good at, at, at sort of highlighting the concerns of these things and the, the downside. So what, uh, 
What, what do you see here with the Hawley bill? Yeah, well, <laughs> where do we begin? <laughs> um, so, but in terms of terms of service, this is an idea that's come up a lot um, over the years. I've heard it from um, uh, groups out of Europe who want more moderation, don't understand why hate speech, quote unquote, is out there. And they're kind of like, look, these sites have terms of service. Why are they not enforcing the terms of service? Let's make them be required to enforce their terms of service. And one of the problems is that it misunderstands what the point of a terms of service is. Um, now, when I talk to companies, I advise them to say, look, it really needs to also function like a marketing document because it's kind of the founding context of your relationship with your user. So I think they should be written in an accessible way that people can understand and, you know, give them what they want. But they're really designed at their core to be liability limiting instruments. Companies and platforms have terms of service in order to um, control business risk, control legal risk, and they're not going to make a terms of service that is going to create more risk for themselves. The whole point of having a terms of service is to reduce the risk. So if all of a sudden now you've got like wholly putting in statutory form this idea that you should have a terms of service and um, it's creating potential risk for you to have it, all it's going to do is drive terms of service behavior where you're not going to get companies saying, yes, we're willing to articulate absolutely everything and be held, you know, our feet to the fire to make sure we do it absolutely right. They're going to start writing um, much more vague terms of service that promise much less because then they're not going to be obligated to deliver something that they can't possibly deliver as perfectly as everybody wishes they could just snap their fingers and make happen. Um, I'm looking at the text of his language, and I think that he certainly intends that everybody writes a very specific uh, content policy um, protocol that they will definitely, of course, perfectly adhere to. Um, but I'm not entirely sure that would be the effect. I think that basically all of a sudden terms of service are going to look like we reserve the right to be completely arbitrary, and that's the end of it. <laughs> um, I don't think that works well in terms of having a good relationship with your users. Um, you know, if you're a user, maybe you don't want a platform that says they're going to be arbitrary, although in certain instances, maybe you do. Um, but that should be the way that it plays out, that if the platform is not going to deliver what users want, users won't come, and the platforms normally are subject to market pressure to do what their users want if they want to attract consistent user bases. That's the way it works. That's the way you get the most of the beneficial promises and the best attempts at actually delivering that benefit. Um, what Hawley is doing is blowing up all that incentive to actually be constructive along those lines and making it that a platform is better off basically promising absolutely nothing and delivering even less. So, which I don't think is what he was shooting for as a policy matter. Well, I think, and I think it's important to discuss a little bit of the context here. And there's the framing of the bill in terms of what Hawley says it's supposed to do and, and what it will actually do. But there's also the sort of wider debate, which is the, the real reason why this bill was introduced, which is that the president whom Hawley supports is upset that, that Twitter fact-checked him, right? And And there's this belief out there that is without much evidence that the moderation choices of the various platforms is targeting uh, one particular set of political views. Now, uh, people get very mad at me when I say there's no evidence for that, but I stand by it. There remains no evidence of that. I think it's generally a, a form of confirmation bias from people who don't understand how content moderation actually works, especially at the kinds of scale of, of the very large platforms. And they're not 
paying attention to the cases that go against that that viewpoint, and they also don't understand that the both the difficulty of applying rules in any consistent manner when every application of the rules requires uh, you know a, a variety of different uh, you know facts and 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 understanding of what's going on, and also you have uh, uh, nefarious or malicious actors who are deliberately trying to game the system in one way or another in order to try and get their content through, and also to try and uh, set up systems that that pretend or, or or make it appear as if there is selective enforcement when it's really that one side is doing things in good faith and one side is maybe not doing things in good faith. Um, and so when you put all of that into the as the context for the Hawley bill, what Hawley is really trying to do is set up a system whereby um, you know, by by saying that platforms have to enforce things consistently, what he's really trying to do is say, let you know, my friends game the system to get their abusive or uh, false information online without it being moderated in some form or another. And I think there, it was really interesting in Holly's bill to see that he took on this idea of intentionally selective enforcement, both kind of in general or by, by human moderators and by automated systems. Um, mm -hmm. Because with both of those together, it is, that is a, it kind of leaves operators of online services without many options, right? Like you, <laughs> if you, when I first read the piece about intentional selective enforcement of terms and, you know, thinking about human moderators, I got very concerned. Wait, is this just a bill to promote filtering? Um, you know, and to say that you need to, that it's something that we hear a lot when people are talking about, they want to see comprehensive or consistent enforcement of policies on a service. They really mean I want, you know, broad-based filtering of all content to catch mm -hmm. all of the hate speech or all of the incitement to terrorist activity or, or whatever it may be. Um, so the fact that Holly then kind of follows up this idea of we don't want the bias from your moderators with we also don't want the bias from your algorithms, really the one of the only safe routes forward for most services would be like, okay, look, we can't take material down because how in the world do you justify in court that there wasn't intentionally selective enforcement behind these decisions to remove content? Um, it's a very sort of vaguely proposed standard um, in this bill and I think would be a significant chilling effect on, on services from really doing any takedown-based moderation at all. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And, and uh, along those lines, would that set up by itself also uh, open up the bill, should it ever get passed and signed into law, to, to some sort of First Amendment challenge? I mean, I think that's sitting out there. there there's definitely a lack of understanding about how the First Amendment informs our Section 230 policy debates, because there's a lack of understanding of how the First Amendment applies to platforms in general. Section mm -hmm. 230 doesn't change the First Amendment. It just sort of makes it that that First Amendment protection can be more useful because it mitigates, it, it minimizes the chance of expensive debilitating litigation. Um, but this runs headlong into it. The idea that a company must have an editorial policy that it must follow perfectly, 
that doesn't pass muster under the First Amendment. It wouldn't normally. Um, there's no way that this can actually work. And a lot of the things that people are upset about with platforms, where they're like, well, if platforms are doing this and they're benefiting from Section 230, let's get rid of Section 230. No, really, the thing that they're unhappy about is that platforms are exerting their First Amendment rights. So to change that, you would have to get rid of the First Amendment, which, boy, I, I know some people want to, but that would be really a bad idea. Um, so I think it does run headlong into, from a practical matter, I don't think the First Amendment um, allows what he's trying to do, um, but we really don't want to poke the bear to have to litigate through that, because this <laughs> will be really ugly in, in the process of getting that all straightened out. Yeah, it, yeah, the discussion about kind of would this technically even be feasible also reminds me a lot of the original uh, Communications Decency Act case, the Reno versus ACLU case at the Supreme Court. Um, in 1997, which was the first case to look at applying the First Amendment to online speech. And the court took very seriously in that case the, the actual like, question of can the intermediaries technically comply with what the law is asking them to do. I think one of the flip sides we might see from this um, selective enforcement idea is, you know, one way to demonstrate you are not selectively enforcing your policy is to have very broad bans against material, right? To say no nudity or no pornography or um, maybe something like no hate speech and just try to be as blanket as possible and and have that incentive to err on the side of taking material down that might arguably fit in your policy just so that you can demonstrate like, look, we're not, we're not playing favorites. If anybody uses any kind of curse words at all, we take down their post because that's our policy. And that's the only way, you know, only doing something very ham handed like that um, it, as a way to try to say we are not being selective in how we enforce. Um, right. That's a kind of incentive in the law for companies to be really overbroad in taking down protected speech um, that the, court, the Supreme Court has already said it has major First Amendment issues. He's also got a couple of other potentially constitutional infirmities going into this bill. I mean, the whole concept of statutory damages. We obviously have a lot of statutory damages on the books, but there's some significant constitutional questions, and we see this in the copyright context, about whether they are that's actually okay or whether that's actually representing a due process problem because they tend to function as sort of a punitive consequence in a way that does not have full due process protections the way a criminal proceeding would have. Um, He's also got some language about, well, this could be a federal judge, a state judge, or another arbitrator who's decided this. And I imagine what he's anticipating is if you're going to litigate under what your terms of service said, since that's a contract, maybe it goes to arbitration. But now we've got some Article Three problems about who is making these decisions uh, in terms of what the, um, you know, the t what the term it serves as said and whether there's a viable claim that could even result in $5,000 damages. Um, with that, we should also note that it's 5,000 at minimum. It could be higher if you can somehow plead actual damages. So, you know, 5,000, you actually get out easy, um, but people could bring claims um, asking for more. And then there's the fact that like on the one hand, it's sort of nice from a policy standpoint that he's trying to minimize who this law would apply to like, there's a lot of language that suggests, okay, it wouldn't apply to Wikimedia. They don't have the revenue and they don't, they're a nonprofit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this idea that he's gunning for large players that make a lot of money, 
I don't know, that sort of raises an equal protection problem to me about why you're picking on certain people and certain people are under different degrees of scrutiny for what their First Amendment exercise looks like. Um, so I think it, it's subject to challenge pretty much for basically everything technical he tried to put <laughs> in the law, I think is subject to um, uh, constitutional scrutiny, let alone that it is not overall, overall, it is not a good idea. Even if there were no constitutional infirmities, the bottom line is he's not going to get what he wants, and he's going to end up with less than what he wants if he tries to do this as a policy matter. Yeah, I, I think it's tricky. And, and just to um, – I, I assume most people recognize this, but just to go back to a point that Emma was making earlier about you know, if you have a platform saying something like no nudity um, and, and just having that as a broad policy, that creates all sorts of problems that I think – people who haven't thought this through might not understand in, in terms of, you know, it's easy to say, okay, our, 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 you know, uh, our policy is no nudity, but then what do you do when someone takes a picture of like a nude statue or, uh, you know, a piece of famous artwork that has nudity in it, is that allowed? Or, you know, as was the famous case with, with Facebook, if you had, um, you know, mother's breastfeeding, does that qualify for, for being taken down or not? And it's, it's easy to think, and, and the, the, the deeper you dig into that, the, the trickier it becomes, which is why, you know, Facebook, for example, has this vast, ever-changing set of policies um, that, that continually have to be adjusted because every case is different and the fact patterns are not as simple as everyone seems to think they are. Um, and so, you know, having, having a, a broad policy doesn't work. It just creates all sorts of problems. Um, that I, I think it's it's worth recognizing, and that creates its own its own problems. Um, well, let's move on from from the Holly Bill to the the Justice Department proposal. And the Justice Department, um, under Attorney General Bill Barr, you know, sort of for some reason late last year suddenly decided that they were very interested in Section 230. I still don't understand why, because Section 230 very clearly exempts any federal crimes, anything that the DOJ would do from, from being subject to 230. So it's not like it's held back the Justice Department, but for whatever reason, uh, he decided it was a, a big deal, and they, they brought together people for for a set of roundtables, one public, one private, I think, uh, and then they have now released this proposal. Um, and uh, who wants to summarize the proposal? <laughs> um, you mean list all 13 major changes to Section 230? <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, I'll just give a quick uh, bite, which is why I think the Holly Bill is terrible. The DOJ's proposal is actually dangerous. Um, but in terms of the details, yes, I don't know. Emma, do you want to explain any of the number of 13 ways that it would actually be so? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I could just highlight a couple of the, the big issues that sure. I see with what um, the DOJ is proposing. It, it really is kind of a, um, a smorgasbord of lots of different ideas we've seen about changes to the 230 framework, all kind of packaged together. And it's not even clear in the report itself how the DOJ anticipates all these different changes working together. So I'll just say up front. At this point, I do not actually fully understand what the <laughs> liability regime in the U.S. would look like if all of what the DOJ is looking for got implemented. There's just a ton of moving pieces that don't necessarily either maybe redundant with each other or, or don't fit in very well. Um, but 
some of the big ideas in this proposal include um, creating a lot of different carve outs for existing Section 230 protection, protection that seem to follow the model that we saw in the SESTA-FOSTA law that was passed a couple of years ago and that is currently be ch being challenged by Woodhull Foundation, Human Rights Watch, EFF, Internet Archive, um, a couple of others uh, as a violation of the First Amendment. Um, so these are ideas around creating a new standard of intermediaries who purposefully facilitate content that they knew or had reason to believe violated a federal criminal law. My best read of these proposals is that they might actually require changes to existing federal criminal law as well as the 230 framework, um, but we can come back to that. He also talks about, or the DOJ proposal also talks about creating a kind of notice and takedown uh, system mm -hmm. for content. It's not exactly clear what the scope of this content would be, what kind of illegal con or how illegal the content at issue <laughs> might be, but it, it is a, a very new idea of bringing the sort of notice and takedown regime that we currently have in the U.S. under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act um, and applying some version of that to sort of all other types of content. Um, one really big thing to, to emphasize, and maybe I'll stop there, is there's also a major proposal, I think it's the second one in, um, in the list, about making Section 230 protections contingent on companies not providing end-to-end -end encryption for their users. Um, I don't believe that they actually specify the word encryption anywhere in this proposal, <laughs> um, which is something we've also seen in the, the discussions around the Earn It Act that's currently before Congress. Um, a lot of kind of textual arguments of if it doesn't say encryption specifically, then we're not talking about encryption. But it talks about wanting to create a, a carve out, a total carve out from Section 230 protections for actors who purposefully blind themselves and law enforcement to illicit material. Um, and so that's, I think, you know, going to that question of what is driving DOJ's interest here, we have seen repeated focus from DOJ on this question of end-to-end -end encryption, what it means when service providers are not necessarily going to be able to, to see the content that their users are exchanging, um, certainly through private communications, uh, and are not necessarily going to be able to provide that information to law enforcement um, in the course of a, a criminal investigation. That has been something the DOJ has been very focused on um, for, you know, for months, if not longer, and, uh, and it's very prominently included in this report from the DOJ. Yeah, it and I mean, there's a very cynical take on all of this. Uh, you know, the encryption debate is is a separate one, but the uh, ability of the DOJ to tie the 230 debate to the encryption debate is extremely frustrating because those two things should obviously have nothing to do with one another. Um, but I, I I think it's sort of a deliberate tactic. Um, which I am just generally annoyed about. <laughs> they shouldn't, but on the one hand, I think about myself as a defender and why am I alarmed by all these different policy areas? And the reality is because it does actually combine into one online, how is your life free online? Um, how do your overall bucket of constitutional liberties apply to your online behavior? So in some sense, it does connect, but yes, mixing up policy proposals that have heretofore existed in relatively separate silos, um, yeah, they're doing it on purpose and probably out of completely cynical motivations. But some of the way they're framing it is like as a discovery issue of bad people are doing things um, 
and I think the way the DOJ proposal is framed and the way they avoid the encryption is if we've had an allegation that somebody's doing something bad, you platform need to be in a position to tell us who that is so we can go, you know, go chase after them. And oh, and isn't that in the spirit of 230, which, you know, imposes the liability on the actual culpable user? Um, the problem is, is you've also got some conflicting values and liberties that are running through this process, including that you have the right to anonymous uh, speech. And they're basically, I, I read this to declare war on the concept of platforms being able to facilitate anonymous speech, where the idea is you don't let anybody speak unless you have a way of holding them accountable. And that's not consistent, I think, with the way the First Amendment articulates that right. So so within the DOJ proposal, and again, it's not actual legislation or anything at this point, um, we also see constitutional issues. Oh, boy, yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's why I'm framing it more as dangerous because it really does run um, headlong into um, a lot of significant problems where I don't think they're understanding what Section 230 was for. I don't think they're understanding what the First Amendment was for. Um, I don't think they're understanding anything. Um, <laughs> like even when I was reading some of the introductory flowy language, I mean, there's just so many misconceptions that are informing the policy recommendation. Like there was one section I saw where they were talking about how Section 230 got passed um, to protect incipient platforms that were running into problems with liability. And by incipient platform, they meant Prodigy, which had a problem with Stratton Oakmont in like 1995. Um, but Prodigy was not an incipient platform. Prodigy was over 10 years old by that point, And the problem was that the platform had actually gotten big and was not in a position to um, be able to moderate the way Stratton Oakmont was threatening that it needed to be able to moderate. Um, I mean, just some fundamental ideas are getting baked into this proposal that are wrong. That was wrong. The language about how 230 is just designed to protect the core issue of potential defamation, that's not true. That's not supported by the record. Um, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox are busy writing amicus briefs all the time, pointing out that that's not what the intention ever was. So, of course, you know, if all of your ingredients are terrible, of course the pie is going to come out awful. Like, there's just no way to make it sensible when you don't understand how anything works. You can't fix something that you don't – you're not understanding what to fix if you don't understand what's broken or what's not necessarily broken. Yeah, it does feel like there is this general belief out there that everything bad on the Internet is 230's fault and somehow changing 230 will fix that. And I think – both of those assumptions are incorrect. <laughs> the problems are not because of 230, and changing 230 will not fix any of those problems um, and could make a lot of other problems as, as well. Um, the, do we have any idea what happens next? I mean, this is a proposal. It's not, it's not legislation. I know that in the Trump executive order, it also does instruct the attorney general to come up with like reference legislation or something along those lines is this is this do we know if this is like what they're going to use as the basis of the reference le legislation do we have any idea what where this goes next silence <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i i don't know if holly is done maybe he's got more up his sleeve like and i'm losing track because it's not just holly's bill and i'm you know, things are coming out constantly and remaining pending while other things also remain pending. So there's just this big acronym soup that's kind of hanging out there. Um, but I don't yeah, know what think, Congress is planning to tackle first. I think at the very least, this report will be the kind of 
reference manual for different ideas that come up uh, before mm-hmm. Congress. In you know, and it, it's hard to say right now with the general election looming in November, um, just how much time Congress is actually going to have or want to devote to Section 230 through through this session. But I think we should definitely take a close look at everything that is in this report because it covers some ideas that have already come up in proposals, um, as Kathy was saying, from from Senator Hawley um, and some other ideas that, you know, we've seen proposed here and there. So as a kind of summary or an articulation of different strategies or approaches to fundamentally changing the 230 framework, um, you know, I, I think we will keep seeing these ideas. Whether DOJ is hard at work right now, I think I saw a reference in Politico today that they may actually have had a um, a draft bill that they've they've shared with OMB for uh, the Office of hmm. Management and Budget for, for their kind of feedback and approval. So we may well be seeing legislation, a specific bill actually articulating um, in statutory language some of these ideas. Uh, we might be seeing that forthcoming, but I'm not sure exactly timing <laughs> on that. Great. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> One of the things that bewilders me about this is the very strange politics of it. Now, this is not unfamiliar territory to us that tech policy tends to cross traditional partisan boundaries that um, we can see good stuff from, from Republicans, good stuff from Democrats and terrible stuff from both, too. So why there should be an exception? Of course, that it'll just be the same. It's going to be bipartisan crap no matter what. But I think given the polarization of our current sense of politics it should really be alarming to people to watch how this ends up allocating power because all of these proposals, I mean, the idea that the DOJ would even have agency, more agency than it already has in enforcing platform speech or et cetera, et cetera. If you're sitting here in the wake of this weekend's controversy about the politicization of the DOJ and now there's discussion about potentially impeaching Bill Barr, like, how can any Democrat put their name or any support behind a bill that's going to give somebody sitting in the seat that Bill Barr is currently sitting in with more power? Like, I think the the absurdity of our current situation should really be a big red flashing neon warning light to people, particularly on the Democrat side, to say, like, if you are really as unhappy with what your partisan opponents are doing, you need to take a long, hard look at these proposals and how it empowers them to do more of what you detest. Um, I really don't understand quite how these political decisions are being made, where they're crossing the aisles, joining hand in hand on this issue, but not anything else. Well, I think a lot of it is just um, both sides uh, have decided that they hate big Internet companies and somehow this is the way to attack them. I mean, the, the, the sort of silly thing about that, of course, is that like, you know, if any company can survive whatever mess comes out of any of these, should they become law, it would be the big internet companies and it would be the smaller ones that would suffer. It's just sort of the black and white, the basics of it. So if you're anti-Trump and you don't like Twitter that has given Trump a forum and you're a Trumpster and you don't like that he's potentially now getting slightly kicked off of the forum – don't you notice that like if Trump is unhappy about the thing that you're unhappy with, maybe that should make you recheck your position? <laughs> you're, you're expecting logic where logic does I not live. I am. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm just very idealistic like that. <laughs> um, I mean, one thing I, I thought was 
interesting it, reading the DOJ report for the the rhetoric that it uses. Um, I think is is really interesting because it does a lot of subtle things where it 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 is trying to come off as a very, very reasonable proposal that is ultimately looking out for the best interests of people, right? So it, it, it understand, it's written from the perspective that understands that's got to be the way you frame discussions about online content. Um, and it, it pulls on different things that, you know, those of us in the, the advocacy world have been saying for years about wanting more transparency from companies about what their policies are and how they're applied, wanting people to understand, you know, why has their content come down or why has their account been deactivated? So it's it's definitely got some very politically savvy efforts to, um, you know, to frame the debate as just being really what they're asking for is really just very reasonable uh, things to ask for from these services, while also really radically changing the legal framework that has governed speech online. I mean, it's, it's, you know, so to that end, you know, hats off to them. They've, they've made it hard to tell exactly what it is they're doing, but it, it sounds good if you start to just skim the the report. Right. That was the feeling I was having when I was reading it. Like I was trying to read all this, you know, flowy text that they put around it. And I kept like, my eyes were bleeding because every time I tried to get into it, I'd read a sentence and it is very, I'm very cynical about the rhetoric they used, but then I was also looking more closely at every particular sentence and you could realize that these are undercooked ideas. These are, they're throwing around footnotes in a way that makes it look like, oh, we are very authoritative and of course we know what we're talking about. But if you actually know anything about how this works and you look at the assertions they're making, no, they're, they're extremely superficial, if not completely ignorant. And so maybe as one, one concrete example to that, um, it's in my list of proposal changes, it's number 11, uh, but it's it's toward the end of the report. Um, and it's this idea of in, so in section 230C2A, there is the list of, uh, you know, services are not liable for actions taken to restrict access to obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable content. And the proposal that DOJ puts forward is to take otherwise objectionable out of that statute um, to reel in, they frame it as a concern about the unconstrained discretion that um, especially the biggest platforms have in crafting their terms of service. And they want to really significantly narrow C2A to only focus on those listed categories or speech that otherwise violates federal law or promotes violence or terrorism. So I, I say that that's really significantly restricting what C2A would cover because it does actually start to kind of, at least in theory, limit services from being able to do moderation that would take down, um, you know, speech that was lawful, but that the service didn't want to host. Uh, currently, you know, obviously service providers, um, social media companies, website operators, the comment forums on, um, you know, on websites and newspapers, uh, they have a lot of discretion about how they set what their policies are. They can take down speech that is, in fact, lawful and constitutionally protected. They can make content-based restrictions on speech and say, we just don't want you to talk about that topic in this particular venue. Um, what I think this proposal from DOJ is, is trying to do is really change that and say that, no, if, if the, basically, if the federal government could not write a law restricting this speech, service providers also cannot take it down. And that would leave a lot of 
elements of different content policies that we're familiar with today without kind of a legal basis, or at least it would really create a, a big cloud over the legality of having policies against things like mis and disinformation or voter mm -hmm. suppression or even just kind of off topic bans um, and and any other kind of content moderation that the federal government couldn't mandate. So that itself is it's one of those things that, you know, it, it's it's framed as a very, you know, oh, we want to constrain their discretion, but it doesn't really explain just what the consequences of that would be. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it would be massive. But one one thing on that, which is, you know, the focus on C2A, um, that's like almost every case so far has, even even the moderation cases have really hinged on C1, uh, which doesn't have that list and doesn't have the good faith part and uh, all of these other things. So I kind of wonder, you know, considering how useless C2A or C2 in general has has been overall um like whether or not that change would even matter you know if everything hinges on c1 which is the the 26 words that basically you know put say put the liability on the on the speaker not the platform i um, contemplated that today but i don't think i feel good about it because no i don't feel good about yeah, it <laughs> i think if they because i thought about that too where two third like i am aggravated by the language of c2 because it doesn't really mirror C1 and I think that introduces confusion um, and I think it's like tip the balance a little bit where we're making C1 do more work than I think it was actually intended to. Yes. Um, but if they change C2 then all of a sudden that's going to try to take equal weight and be there and be a framing that's going to suck back all the energy into C2 that C1 has currently been carrying. So sure. I tried to rationalize it away of like, oh, well, I guess if this happens, yeah, maybe it won't matter. I think it's going to matter because it's going to be the thing that's going to have the gravitational pull to pull a lot of the decisions back onto the other side and still undermine and make it more difficult to argue that the original policy balance that Congress was trying to strike, which we've advocated before, the most good stuff and the least bad stuff, um, now all of a sudden it's a completely different policy balance, which is being implemented in a completely different way. And I think a lot of the advocacy will fall apart. I think part of it too goes to, because I, I totally agree, Mike, that C2A currently is not the, the linchpin of, of most Section 230 cases. Um, but as best I can understand what the DOJ is proposing here, they really do want to kind of reinvigorate it. And, and we're see, we see right. a lot of focus in the kind of political discussion about Section 230 on C2A. I think, um, you know, as, as Kathy's pointing out, it's, it's not the sort of very bare bones language of C1. It's got all of these juicy phrases like, action voluntarily taken in good faith and talks about obscene and lascivious right. and excessively violent content. Um, and, and so there's a lot that you could potentially try to read into that. But the DOJ is also the, the one of the last things that they say in the report. Um, they, they sort of take a moment to recognize the moderator's dilemma, right? This idea that <laughs> um, pre, predated Section 230, it was this concept, right. you know, it was sort of the explanation of what happens if you apply traditional publisher liability the way a newspaper or a book publisher would face. Um, if you apply that to an online service, you create this dilemma where 
if services moderate content, then they are going to be considered to be more like a traditional publisher because they are reviewing what the users are posting. They're maybe editing it or deciding what to leave up and what to take down. And that's the pathway towards more liability in the offline world. But that more liability is kind of totally unsustainable for a, a service that's hosting content at internet scale. Um, and so if you create that kind of liability for services, then you actually discourage them from doing any of the kind of beneficial moderating that most of us enjoy in most of the forums that we use. So, so the DOJ recognizes the moderator's dilemma as a thing that exists, which is good. That's, that's something. Um, and then they, I, again, I don't exactly understand legally what they mean here, but they want to try to create a distinction between if services are taking content down pursuant to C2A, they might retain their liability from at least civil lawsuits under 230. But if they remove content outside of C2A, then that does not get immunity um, in either part of the Section 230 statute, even if it's mm -hmm. consistent with the platform's ter terms of service. And so it's not really clear what that means, at least to me, in, in reading this report. But I do, I do think there is, it's, it's sort of a, a breadcrumb towards the idea that they do mean various pieces of these proposals to be read together. So changes that they propose in the first section of the report to C1, changes to C2A, and then finally tying things together with almost sort of a totally, I think they essentially want to write, rewrite the Section 230 statute, and rather than just saying that up front and saying this is a totally new liability regime and we're going to write it out soup to nuts. Um, they, they spend a lot of time talking about making small, quote unquote, small changes to 230 uh, that pretty much transform it into just a different legal framework entirely. I would almost rather have them do that, that be honest about it. If you think that this is not the right policy to have, then change it and do it from whole cloth and do it consistently, coherently, and in a way that we can, you know, see what the statute is doing, how it's operating, and litigate around it. I don't want that because I can't believe that there's any regime that will be better than what we've got that won't have serious problems with free speech, protecting free speech online. But um, this is just a mess. And basically, they're not putting forth any sort of coherent policy. They're just sort of ruining the policy that we've currently had. So it has no gain and <laughs> nothing but loss. And um, I think they should be a lot more intellectually honest about what they're trying to do, because if there's any value of the policy they're trying to articulate, it's the only way that it would ever be achieved. Well, on that happy note... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I a, it's a Section 230 podcast, Mike. It was never going to be pretty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but part of the problem, part of the reason why they won't do that is because they don't want to admit that, right? I mean, this is the problem with pretty much every Section 230 proposal, which is that nobody wants to come out and say what they're really trying to do, um, or they don't understand what it is that they're really doing, um, or some combination of those things. But anyways, uh, I think that is a good overview, and I think we've spent as much time as, as necessary uh, on, on each of these proposals. We'll sort of see where they go. Um, and, you know, there's there are so many other attacks on 230 happening right now. And uh, we mentioned briefly the Earn It Act, which I know is, is scheduled to be marked up soon. And there will probably be other bills and the DOJ may do more of what it's going to do. And who knows if any of it is actually going to matter. 
But uh, since this podcast is now Section 230 all the time, <laughs> I am sure that we will be covering it and that we will have uh, both of you guys back on uh, at some point again in the future to discuss whatever terrible, confusing, unworkable, unconstitutional proposal <laughs> comes out of uh, Congress or wherever it might come from. So uh, <laughs> thanks to both of you for, for taking the time and, and going through this exercise in torture. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I, I appreciate trying to think through all of these complex and confusing proposals, which all seem to come from a weird, a weird sort of anti-internet, anti-free speech place um, that is uh, unfortunate. Um, but uh, again, thanks, thanks for taking the time and thanks for walking through all of these changes. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we... I keep saying that I don't know quite what our schedule is for the podcast anymore since time has no meaning and the world is upside down. Um, I think we'll be back again next week with another podcast, but we'll see. So uh, thanks, Emma. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. To grab a shovel and dig up the